Welcome. You're about to be ushered past the velvet rope and into a world of hyper-effective salesmanship that's understood and used only by the world's most notoriously rich and successful marketers. We're taking a journey deep inside the human brain, past the surface clutter, and into the psychological insights to answer the one crucial question, what makes people buy? I'm your host, Kevin Rogers, along with the most ripped off and respected copywriter alive, John Carlton, and this is Psych Insights for Modern Marketers. Hey everybody, welcome to Psych Insights for Modern Marketers. It's Kevin Rogers here with my friend and partner, John Carlton. Hey, John. Hey, how you doing? Good, buddy. Good to be back for another show. And uh, today we're going to talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, this is a famous pyramid of needs created by uh, Mr. Maslow, that um, Abraham Maslow, of course. As I look at the Wikipedia, everybody just <laughs> listen. That'd be a good quiz. How many people know the first name of Maslow? Um, and um, you have some great thoughts on this. We we're you know talking a little about in the pre-show here. Um, obviously, most copywriters know this well. They know that um, somewhere on this uh, pyramid lies their their best prospects, driving uh, motivators for whether they're going to buy the product or not. But it obviously goes a lot deeper into the you know human psyche and um, in, in societal um, you know turmoils and things that we see even in the news today. So, uh, John, give us a little introduction. You know in your experience with it and sure. um, how you use it in copy. Well, um, a lot of a lot of people have talked about this in like glancing blows. Um, Maslow was one of these guys. Other than this, I you know I never really spent any time studying the guy. He was back in the forties. He was uh, he came out with this kind of post war, or no, actually right right in the middle of the war, I think. So he was kind of overshadowed by World War II and the invasion of the Hun. Um, but what what it what it is Maslow's hierarchy of needs is a pyramid and it's not the food pyramid but it's it's this idea of where your human concentration is at any particular time given the circumstances of where you're at and what's happening to you and around you and it's it's one of the few things of early psychology that was really um usable it was it was a functional concept that he had and I don't know again if, if he had other good concepts or not but this one stuck around because advertising caught on to it very very early on and they talked about you know some of the big guys Ross or Rees and guys I mean they 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 talked about Maslow a bit and basically uh, while you're listening to this you can pop on to uh, I'm looking at simplypsychology.org uh, I think Kevin was on Wikipedia just Maslow M A S L O W uh hierarchy of needs and if you don't know what hierarchy is you need to go look that up right now because it's <laughs> it's pretty essential to what we're going to be talking about and that would be up there around uh the fourth stage of this same anyway the the basic <laughs> overview of this for me and I had a copy of this um uh a uh, uh, hierarchy which again is in a is in a pyramid shape mm -hmm. up 
on the wall over my desk for like the first decade that I was writing. And I didn't like pour over it, but I used it as a reminder that some people uh, are going to be at a much not just a much a radically different level of awareness of need of understanding um than other people and and this was my early stages of trying to identify the markets i was after what what was the mindset of the people that i was after sometimes it's all over the map but often when you're going after targeted markets they really do fall into some of these categories. And just really quickly, the bottom layer of this pyramid is physiological needs. And I, I, I was telling Kevin, I like to think about this in terms of the, you know, the, the apocalyptic nature of some movies or say if, you know, to bring it, bring it more home, if you were in the, the Katrina hurricane, for example, your, your basic level of needs are like water, food. Um, uh, being able to just survive as the most basic animal possible, kind of like what a rabbit needs to to survive. The next stage up would be safety needs. You want you want uh, walls around you. That's where uh, you start looking for caves or shelter. If, if if you're looking at a movie where these people are suddenly in a shipwreck or something, the first thing they do they try to find fresh water and and something to eat. The next thing they do they either build a hut or they find a cave to stay in or something as as, as they start to move up uh, you because it, it, the the safety needs you start to look for for security and kind of freedom from fear so so you're not um, uh, if there's animals around or something you have some way of protecting it so you're, you're going to build that spear and sharpen the end and all this stuff this is kind of natural stuff we take for granted because we've seen so many movies and we've thought about it and as kids maybe we even played stuff like this but the first two categories if you think about people in those categories they're very very concerned about some very very basic things and then then when you take care of those the 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 tendency of humans is to move up a level so when you're in a village or that's safe from invasion for a while and there's food on the table and in the pantry and the and the wheat seems to be going well this year and everything's fine then you move up another level to what what uh, he called love and belonging needs uh, friendship intimacy affection love um romantic relationships things like that if if we think about over time <clears throat> you know who's getting involved in the you know the Romeo and Juliet stories and stuff and these are essentially if, if you look at Romeo and Juliet these are spoiled kids you know these these kids are so safe and so protected that they can have gang warfare that they they kind of play with their safety you know yeah. And it actually goes horribly awry, but um, but they're they're in that section where they're actually able to think about romantic love rather than the frantic, you know, needs of, of the lower sections. And then the next section above that is what what uh, uh, they're calling esteem needs. That's where achievement, mastery, independence, status, for example, prestige, respect, think, yeah. respect, yeah, start starts coming in. You don't worry about respect when you're you know in the foxhole and the bullets are. are flying over your head. You worry about safety and you worry about the immediacy of the situation. Mm -hmm. And you will actually put aside a lot of things. You know, it's like it's like they say 
you know, the friendships formed in foxholes, you know, rise above all other problems. You know, you know, racists get together with the people they're racist against. The religions yeah. don't matter, things like that. You, And then the last stage is, is where the term self-actualization comes in. And that's where you talk about self-fulfillment and seeking personal growth and peak experience. I love that peak experiences type of thing. That's where you got everything taken care of. And then as a human, we tend to start to rise above that. That's where the the not the bucket list but the main the lifetime goal starts to come in the idea of you start to go after the uh, great American novel or or you want to run for office you know you, right. you want to be you know governor or president or whatever right so when, when you look at the, at this hierarchy at first and I think this is why I wanted to talk about it the problems with a lot of copywriters is that they glance at it and they go oh it makes perfect sense and then they never look at it again and and you've really got to internalize this you've really got to imagine this because the main thing is that when when you and I say you when a person in say the list you're writing to is stuck in one level and and maybe the levels are aren't quite as clearly defined as they are in this but but in general this is a good way to look at at the at human conditions when someone's stuck at a level they crave entry into the level above them so in other words, the guy who just you know uh, you know crash landed on an island and he's or, or maybe a boat capsizes and everybody's on the island and they're trying to figure out stuff. The guy who finds fresh water is envied until everybody finds fresh water and then you feel better and then you start to envy the guy who's got the cave up on the hill with a big bottle of fresh water and then you know when, when and then after that then you start you know when once everybody's got their cave and they got their fresh water then they start thinking about well, who's got the best mate or who's you know who's 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 going to lead us and then all these other things start to happen right. but this is but there's kind of an order that takes place so when you're going to a list that is very Needy. Let's say you're going to a list that's uh, I, I I don't know uh, off off top of my head. Say a health list, for example, um, a natural natural health list, right? Well, well, or, or just any kind of what, what I was going to say was that you can take this idea, the concepts behind this, and mm-hmm. I. Well, okay, just just to go off on on a slight tangent, understanding the way Maslow took human needs and then categorized them Mm -hmm. was an early hint for me of how I take marketing problems and break them down in a hot seat. It's like Mm -hmm. it's it's so second nature to me that I listen to people and and I realize that what they're what they think is the problem in their business is almost never really the problem. It's it's I, I say it's deeper than that. But what it is, is that sometimes it's inexplicable to the person having the problem. They keep thinking. I need more customers in through the door. And no, you don't. You got plenty of customers coming through the door. What you need is to capture their names and get after them in other ways. And, and you've got to have a back end. You know, one of the first things a lot of non marketers do is they create a business and they don't have a back end, for example. So, in right. Maslow's idea of breaking this down, the next level up of having a good product and an audience that will come in with money and the need to be able to buy it, that's kind of the first layer. The next layer up is are you back ending them? And then after that, it's like, are you continuing a relationship with them? And then you start going through this. But you can't get to continuing a, re- a buying relationship with somebody until you make that first sale. So there is an order to this. And if, if you don't understand it, 
it's it, you know you're kind of left in the dust. It's it, you know human behavior becomes this gooey, shadowy, unknowable, vague thing that you know people fall into. But when you start breaking it down, mm. it, it really starts to make sense, yeah. and it makes sense on on multiple levels. Um, I, I think I made the, the, the point I was trying to make. Oh, oh, as, as far as the health thing, breaking down differently than what Maslow did, take the health. Somebody that's experiencing minor health problems, um, say... Um, uh, Eczema. Hair, no, yeah. Or, or, well, actually, I'm not sure. That's, that's, that's pretty severe. Uh, hair loss, for example, okay, there you go. Is, is a relatively mild thing. Uh, when you have, when you suddenly have a major illness, a heart attack or cancer or something, that's a more major thing, that you're in a different psychological state. You know, somebody. It's it's kind of like that old thing of looking at you know you, you know the the I thought I was, uh, I felt sorry for myself when I had no shoes until I met a man who had no feet. That that old you know, uh, right. Gandhi saying. Right. Um, you know, and, and it's like you can't. The guy with no shoes isn't identifying. Isn't sitting there saying, "I have no shoes," and everybody else has shoes. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not saying, "Well, at least I," you know, "at least I have my feet." But until he is presented with the guy with no feet, and he has some some cognition there, he has he he understands that. Oh, I'm. You know, I'm actually not that bad off. I can correct, and he's and his mindset changes. Yeah. A lot of us in modern life get wired up into I'm ten pounds overweight. My yeah. life is shit. Mm. It'll never be better. You know, I'm. You know, people are laughing at me behind my. I mean, people get caught up in this stuff, and once you start, this is what drew me to psychology: the whole idea of how people think about who they are and what they are, and why they're there, and why God hates them, and the universe is making all this stuff happen to them. And how you break out of that. And as copywriters, we're actually looking at people. If you don't understand the state they're in, and one of the common things I've done, Kevin, with rookie copywriters is get them to like do things like stop making jokes about cancer and stuff. I mean, it, it, it really has gotten to that point sometimes. You know, they're talking about a very, you know, they're talking to people, say, you know, morbidly obese people talking about some kind of way, you know, some kind of health uh, product where they're going to... Uh, lose weight. It's like, don't make fun of that. Halbert had a great story about that, about how his first diet product, he made fun of people being fat, and it went over like a bomb, and he bought radio hmm. ads, and he, he thought he was so clever and doing so stuff, but he wasn't talking to the right audience. He was talking to the people like the laugh at fat people, hmm. not to the people who needed to buy the product to be able to, to gain weight, uh, to lose weight. So he, you know, the, the jokes and stuff all fell flat, and then he discovered something called empathy, which was, you know, he gained a little weight himself, and he started to realize what it felt like and what was going on, and then then it exploded after that. So, you know, if you don't understand where your audience is, then you can't really communicate to them. Did, did you have something to jump in on? Uh yeah, no, you know, I was going to remark earlier, you said you're talking about a list, right? And really understanding where they are. And yeah. because what happens is as a marketer, a uh, list owner, is your list grows, you're probably growing your business and your income. And what happens is you will start writing to your own experience. Oh, yeah. And you're moving up <laughs> the scale, but the people who are needing, you know, help from you are maybe are not as quickly, at least. And so it's good to be able to, um, you know, talk in, about a new reality, but it's critical to remember sort of where you came from and where most people are. Um, and so, yeah, I just wanted to point that out. That, that's a great point that, um, 
you know, because you see this, it's interesting to me when you go to, say, a, a marketing conference, you know, you'll see these different levels of people. Oh, yeah. That's a really good point. You'll see, and you see, and it, over years, you might watch somebody grow their success. And suddenly, you know, when you first meet them, they're just kind of make it and they might have a good idea. And next, you see them in next year and they're like, ah, oh, that idea is actually working out. Good for you, man. You get, you're on fire. This is great. You see them a couple years later and they do, yeah, I just got back from, um, from, from Africa and we built a school and, <laughs> and you, and you, ah, oh, that's, fan-, you know, that's, wow, that's fantastic. But I mean, that's a clear, um, sign of somebody just moving up the scale because mm-hmm. suddenly everything beyond what they could have hoped for is taken care of, you know, their, their, their family's paid for, they're secure, they could die tomorrow and, and things that keep them up at night are pretty much be okay. So mm-hmm. now they're reaching out, they want to help. What can I, what's this all about? And, and what can I do with my life? So, That's right. Yeah. So, so the, uh, just to clarify, the, the copywriter really does need to viscerally understand either either by experience and that's the best way to do it and that's why you know i i hold my life you know in such high regard myself because i just went out there and made every possible mistake there was and i you know i really did drag myself up from not knowing if i was going to make the rent living out of my car and stuff and doing all of that so i i viscerally understand that but if you weren't there like i've never been really overweight for example but i but i use this thing called empathy and by a Adjusting it by thinking, okay, I haven't had that, but I've had other problems, and and how does that correlate? And being able to bring that in, so I have been able to use empathy to break in, you know, to break into the mindset of almost everybody. But you have to understand the stage they're at, and you have to be at the stage you want to drag them to. All copywriters, and we were talking before the call, Kevin. A lot of comics, a lot of the best comics, they want to take you somewhere, and usually where they want to take you is a little higher. And it's like it's like thinking about comics or, you know, say a writer or, uh, you know, somebody who's in the same stage. If you're a um, rabid Red Sox fan and, you know, you want to you want to hate on the Yankees and you write an article hating on the Yankees and stuff, that's fine. You're, you're going to appeal to the people who are Red Sox fans doing that. But you break out of that. You take that game and you take it out of Boston and say to New York, you know, it's like, uh, or or say say to St. Louis or something, you know, you're you're in an interleague game. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's going to be a little different. You're going to have a different response. You're going to have different things going on. So if you want to convince uh, Cardinal fans to hate the Yankees as much as you do, you know, you're going to have to pull them into you know that state that, that you're in. That requires uh, that requires persuasion. That requires credibility. That requires all these things we're talking about. So, you know, and, and you know, we, we were talking about the difference between some of the comics and stuff. You know, a comic like uh, Mort Saul, who walked, used to walk on, he was one of my favorite guys from the 50s and 60s, used to walk on stage with a newspaper. And he, he had no, he didn't have a, he had a shtick. He didn't have a memorized thing. He would actually look at the headlines of the paper and then start riffing on it. And it was, it was real time. And he would do that even on TV. So I, I, I'm sure he thought about it beforehand. But he did it wasn't working from a polished script. And that's very high up there. That's that's a guy who's riffing on 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 things that are he was known as the intellectuals comic. Right. Well, you know, for the guy who's waiting for the fart joke, you know, Mortsall's not gonna be the guy he wants to go see. He's gonna walk out of the room thinking, what was that all about? It wasn't fine. I didn't laugh once. Whereas 
the guy who's looking for that kind of high intellectual humor is going to walk out of a basic, and I'm, Kevin, I'm sure you've seen a ton of them, the yeah. guys who go up there and just talk about the most base human things and get easy laughs like, you know, you know, farting jokes yeah. and, and things like that. He's going to walk out saying, well, okay, I laugh, but, you know, I feel kind of dirty. I need to take a shower. Well, you know, let's just take two famous comics. Uh, Bill Hicks was a, a famous intellectual. Who, who you turned me on to. I'd, I'd, I'd been aware of him, but I'd never really seen an act until you sent me that video. And it was it was eye-opening. Yeah. I, I didn't, uh, he was one of those unsung heroes of the of the comic renaissance back in the 80s, right? That's right. He, that's right. Yeah, he was one of the, what they called the outlaw comics from Houston, Texas. Sam Kennison's band of... Uh, Ne'er do wells, <laughs> and uh, you know this great stories about Kinnison, you know the preacher coming to Bill's uh, um, parents who were very very religious and convincing them that it was safe to let Bill at like seventeen or eighteen move out to L.A. with Sam by talking Jesus and, and all this interesting stuff. And, <laughs> and then they no go out and do blow to four in the morning, yeah. But, <laughs> but Bill was a, a really intellectual, uh, intelligent guy uh, and just was not going to cater. He, he would much rather walk the room um, and and use that torture that, it, you know, it has to hurt. You can pretend it doesn't hurt, but it hurts to die. And it's got to hurt to walk a room. And uh, he's done it. Walked every table in the room. And um, and what does that mean? Walk the room walk. means that people just it, that you're not getting any laughs. It's a tortured event for everybody. And, um, you know, one by one, the tables get up and leave until finally everyone's gone. And, you know, yeah, Hicks was famous for, for walking the room. And um, until he got great and he stuck to it and then he had a following and then he got to do it on his own terms. Doug Stanhope is, is another guy who did a similar thing and finally said, you know, screw this. That, you know, Hollywood is never going to get me. The uh -huh. book, most of the bookers don't get me. I'll, I'll, but I'm staying true to my thing. Tortured people, but brilliant artists. And then, you know, juxtapose that to a guy like, you know, Carrot Top, who, who I also knew. And just, you know, it's no shock that Scott has a um, marketing degree. You know, he came out of the gate looking at this like a business and saying, mm -hmm. you know, everybody can joke all they want. Just, you know, sort of spell the name right. And, you know, and he was he was also kind of a cool guy to hang with and he got it. And so it was sort of forgiven because he wasn't a douche. But, you know, no one really took his act seriously and he, and he caught a lot of flack for being a prop act. But, you know, you look at the, um, those two guys and, and you say, um, you know, that was Hicks's thing. Like he would rather get no laughs, but you know, if it went well, he was taking that audience somewhere they'd never been before. The energy in a Bill Hicks room or a concert was thick. You could feel it. it, it something mm -hmm. was happening. You know, Carrot Top was like you said, like, ah, you had to just, you know, it, it's, it's, it's like watching Dumb and Dumber. You just check your head and go, all right, this is silly, but it's kind of funny. So what the hell? It's slapstick, right? It's Three Stooges. And so it's um, it's it's where capitalism meets art. You know, Van Gogh, as they like to say, never sold a painting in his life, I think. Uh, or maybe his brother sold one or I forget. But, you know, it's like it's like and then Picasso was famous, you know, very early on and lived a life of fame and um, notoriety. 
um, which would you rather be as an artist if you're sitting down and you're looking at, well, where am I going to be in two years, five years? And you look, you look at which one you'd like to be. I think most people would pick Picasso. But some people might pick Van Gogh. It's like it's mm-hmm. like the idea of living in a garret, starving to death, and falling in love with a hooker. You know, is uh, you know meets meets that that level of adventure and everything you want. Um, you can also murder certain artists by giving them money. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, when, when they do hit it, it's like they turn around. They go, "Well, wait a minute," and sometimes they get locked into an act. Let's say you—I I know you probably know like a comic, but we can all think of of people who have done a lot of different things, and suddenly you're locked in. For a copywriter, for example, it's like you know, I was a generalist. I I really thrived when I went to the out of the. Uh, financial newsletter world, you know, mm-hmm. where I was kind of trapped into writing the same thing over and over again to working with Halbert in the entrepreneur world where every job was a different market. You know, I thrived as opposed to a lot of the guys who are gurus now, not to, not to knock them down, but they really stick within, you know, a couple of, of markets and they get very good in that. And that's a great model to use if if you want to make a lot of money and do stuff. I I, I got bored. You know, as far as Maslow's hierarchy, as soon as I got the rent paid six months out, and so I, I had all the shelter and the water was turned on, and I was gonna pay my bills and I started going, I got very uninterested in the stuff that was paying those bills. Mm-hmm. So I part of the hierarchy, part of getting above those basic levels meant branching out and doing something else which is a level of risk and Maslow doesn't doesn't approach that he doesn't talk about that uh, possibly in the self-esteem thing um, or the you know uh, the third stage is love and belonging and and you really do need to belong to something but when you take a guy like Hicks what did he belong to what group did he belong to and would he have done what he had done if if Kennison hadn't hadn't been in the background or hadn't led him or hadn't helped him so there's a sense of, of belonging there right. a sense of being in a group um for me the I didn't get along with the uh you know I'll say it the kind of boring copywriters who were making all the money back right. in the in the 80s and stuff because they picked a certain market and uh, you know really got really good in that and these guys should be studied and I studied them and it was very very good but it just bored the shit out of me so I was stuck at that stage of thinking you know two, two years five years down the line if I'm still doing this I'm gonna shoot myself yeah so that level of risk that came in you know and um, you know it's like it's like those old tests of the the first test when you're an entrepreneur or, or a, co- a freelance copywriter the first test is that the day after you get good after you kind of hit that tipping point where you're actually good you actually just wrote something that, that that not only worked, but you knew it was going to work, and and you felt good about it, and you did everything right. The day after that happens, maybe even an hour after that happens, somebody's going to give you a call, and they're going to offer you a job, a right. job. Yeah. And what you decide at that moment, what if your little heart jumps at the prospect of having someone else worry about your paycheck, and you get to sit in an office and show up somewhere, and you know, and write what somebody tells you. If that is a big relief to you, then you were never meant to be a freelancer. And if, however, the first little 
thought you have is screw you. I wouldn't take a job if I was starving because I've now tasted freedom and independence and being my own boss. Right. Then you truly are meant to be be a. That's that first one. Yeah. Um, the the second one is is for when you know and freelancers really are entrepreneurs. That was an early realization I had. You you got your own business. You're doing things. You have back ends, which is the second job. You have lifetime uh, relationships with clients. I've had clients. I've had relationships for thirty years now, and um, you know the, the 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 thing that enters there is is risk when you actually have to have to take your game up a notch. To be able to service that client better, or yourself, write something better for yourself, or you're taking a risk. You got a wild hair. You're just thinking, you know, I, 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 I you know, intuitively, I think this is going to work. I, but I'm not sure, and I could fall flat on my face. And if I do, I'm going to lose, uh, you know, respect. I'm going to lose money. I'm going to lose all of these things that I've been gathering so carefully. And how you react to that sense of risk that you're actually stepping out of your comfort zone into a into a vague new chapter in your novel that you don't know how it ends. Right. How you react to that also will tell you how what level of entrepreneur you are. Right. It's okay to be a safe entrepreneur to, to get it, get it going. Just you know, you really want to get away from the job and the man and the boss and all that stuff, and to be your own boss. Get a get a groove going and just ride it out for the rest of your life, so that you can make some money and go take good vacations and raise a family and do it. That's perfectly fine. But other guys. You know, if you know yourself, and and as as Maslow called it, self actualization, it's actually realizing who you are and you know wh- why you're doing this. And you know, when when you get there, then you start thinking about you know I have to keep growing, or I have to for me to not stagnate. I have different things have to happen. I have to keep testing the waters. I can't I can't you know I can't be in an island. I got to go back out into the surf and, and see see what's 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 going on. For me, becoming a copywriter, a freelancer, excuse me, uh, uh, was a big deal because. To that, you know, to the point that I actually decided I'm going to try to be a freelancer. I'd never met a freelancer. I didn't really understand the gig. Um, but for me, it wasn't about taking my writing skills and working for clients in exchange for money. It was, I actually thought about this very much. I wanted to find a niche in the world where I fit because I hadn't fit anywhere else. And I was 33 when, the, when this was going on. Right. So I was not a young pup. I had been through a lot. And, and my 20s were turbulent. And again, I'd, I'd been living out of my car and I, I kept losing girlfriends and jobs. And, and it's just, I didn't fit anywhere. And I, it, I just had this epiphany on somebody's couch, actually, that... You know, if something was going to change, I needed to be the agent of change because nobody else was going to come and save me. Even though some friends would come up and offer me a couch to sleep on, they weren't going to offer me self actualization or they weren't going to, you know, they weren't going to say, come live with us, John, and we'll take care of you like you're, you know, like you're 14 years old and and you can't take care of it. It just, you know, I I didn't fit. And I thought there must be, I thought of myself almost like a brick in the wall to take, um, you know, Pink Floyd's thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not, not the brick that that they're talking about but i did want to fit but i wanted to fit in a way that fit me so that i fit and i was a bit of a rebel and i wanted to do this and freelancing it turned out i wasn't sure but i had an intuitive sense that it would fit all those needs i could be a rebel i could as long as i got the job done you know i didn't need to wear a tie i didn't need to show up at you know at a certain time every day at somebody else's office you know and all that stuff and all all that was true and that started to fit
fit. But this was all about way above the basic needs of paying the rent and stuff. And, you know, those first checks I got were, I still remember the thrill of being paid for writing and then the thrill of having that writing work and then the thrill of being called back to the agency to work for them and then being called by the agency that, you know, you're our go-to guy, you know, and all this stuff. It was all really great until... I'd had about six months of it, and I realized, yeah, I am the go-to guy, and I can write stuff that works, and then I realized I was instantly bored. And then along came Jay Abraham, you know, and it was like, oh, wow, there's a whole other risky world out there. You know, to take $2,000 to somebody, sit down and not know anything about their biz and give yourself an hour to be able to understand their biz, their problems, solve their problems and give them, you know, things that they can take back and implement right away. I mean, that's huge. That's a huge risk yeah. because you don't know what's going on. That's like stepping into a ring to box somebody that you've never seen before. You don't know how big they are. You don't know what, the, you know, what, what skills they bring until you get hit first. And, you know, th- that kind of risk terrifies a lot of people, but some people thrive by it. So as you get up the, the hierarchy, as you take care of your basic needs, you start to move up. As a freelancer or as a marketer, you know, taking care of yourself, you have to understand how you fit into this and, and what's going on. Because it's not a single monolithic life that entrepreneurs live. It's all over the map. I mean, it's the guys you're talking about that, you know, make enough money to go over and be like Bill Gates and build schools in Africa. Right. Other guys, you know, uh, I've known a lot of these young online entrepreneurs 10 years ago who just kind of, you know, took care of AdWords and made a lot of money and stuff. I, I swear to God, they blew a million dollars in a month or two in Vegas, you know, with cook, with uh, hookers and coke. And it was like, what are you doing? What do you? Th-? And then they think, well, I just, you know, that was a lot of money and I, I blew it and I had a lot of fun because I'm a young guy. And now I got to go make a million dollars. Hmm, what am I going to do? And the world had moved on and they can't make the million and they're gone. You don't hear about them anymore, you know? Right. Or they get into shadier and shadier stuff because the money was the, was the, the driving thing, not the sense of belonging, the sense of providing value to the world, the sense of being someone that other people can count on, things like that. So that's, yeah. that's why I talk a lot about the you know, you're swimming in pools of sharks and sociopaths out there. You know, you really have to understand who who's on your side, who's not, what a what a trustworthy person is, and that's why you need your network of people you can count on. Okay, that's a tangent. I, I don't know where I was going with no, that. So. Yeah, no, some great points in there, and um, you know, let's talk a little bit about. Uh, I can almost hear the question on on the mind of the listener right now. I hear <laughs> I hear you, listener, and. Um, I'm probably thinking, you know, how do I find the heart of the uh, my audience? Say you're a copywriter, and that's you know one of those things that um, you know it's easier than it used to be. We don't have to go actually hang out in the doctor's office to listen to what the patients say in the lobby anymore. That's pretty funny. Uh, but you know, there's there's all kinds of online forums in different places. Mm-hmm. But um, let's talk about you know modern methods for discovering where people live on this scale and then sort of even drilling it down into there into you know making sure we're we're really speaking their language because i think that's that's a big part of this is a one is understanding uh you know and most like you said john you know, i think most people are going to be on one or two the, the bottom rung or the second up Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a good eighty percent. Well, actually, probably up to the third one. Up to the, the third, long, yeah. Long, what if 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 you want to think about the average American? Uh, if, actually, uh, what was the name of um, with John Goodman and um, 
uh, what's her name? The uh, the couple, the the oh the, uh, Roseanne. Yeah, Roseanne. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the house was not neat. It was the it was the anti Dick Van Dyke show kind right. of thing. You know, mm-hmm. uh, he he had a job. I think he lost his job a few times, and you know they were constantly struggling. And within the struggle, there was you know the the, the constant drama going. On. I th- I think you know most people are are within that than they are yeah. with the more idealized section. And you Frazier, know, you know, was also a big hit. But how many people could really relate to Frazier's lifestyle that were that were well. Quite- in the show, you know, get into the mindset of why Hollywood knew that people wanted that. They're looking a level above mm-hmm. where they are. That's where they want to see. And there's all kinds of complex stuff going on. They want to see the great stumble. There's Schadenfreude going on there, mm-hmm. um, or they're just curious, or they think you know this is something they need to have in their mind. Someday I'm going to have that you know that penthouse apartment. You know, and I could do that. And look, you know how, how tough is it to be a radio star? You just go in there and babble every day. You know, <laughs> as Frazier did. You know, and Roseanne. The thing about Roseanne was a whole other thing it was a yeah yeah i understand yeah i get it it's like the um you know it's like telling the trusty fart jokes i i keep saying fart jokes you you must have had kevin a (laughs) a couple of jokes in your back pocket that when you know i because i i'm assuming you as you were often the um the uh the guy who introduced the other comics and stuff so you didn't want to see the tables walk so you must have had you must have had a quick way to gauge the audience. And did you do it possibly by tossing out a few jokes and see where they're at? Yeah, that was part of the gig as, a, as an MC. You would pride yourself on the ability to set up the next comic, right? So, you know, in between, you know, you'd have the, a feature act. And sometimes these comics were not matched well at all. You know, headliners would, one of the first requests once they reached headliner status was, can I choose my own middle act? Because they didn't, you know, if, if the middle act was really dirty, and yeah. the headliner wasn't, uh, that would be a problem right there, you know, huh. or energy thing. So if, you know, sometimes the show was in balance, sometimes the middle act was just better than the headliner and he just wasn't headlining yet. So it's your job to go sort of settle things down and redirect the crowd's energy to set up the headliner. Um, and so, yeah, you, 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 you needed to have enough material so that you could pick and choose. You know, do I want to do I want to do some heady stuff or all right, was the middle act really heady and now are they just bored? Um, well, you know what? You're you're on onto something, Kevin. What was more important? What the product was, the product being the next comedy coming up mm-hmm. or what the audience was. So right. it's it's easy for people to understand a mismatched like a, a Mort saw going in front of a bunch of uh, of, uh, you know, bricklayers, let's say not to put down bricklayers, right. but, you know, it's just, you know, he's not going to go over well because, you know, to an audience that doesn't regularly read a newspaper is going to wonder why is this guy reading the newspaper, right? So trying to match that. So let's right. say you've got a comic coming on who's going to be I don't know, intellectual or dirty, and you're looking at the audience, and you're in Utah. And it's a, you know, it's the Morbin Tabernacle <laughs> Choir that just got off duty and accidentally came into a, a comedy club. I mean, when you're faced with this mis- mismatch, if you just settle in and say, "Well, you know, does the risk thing come up? You know, we're either going to make it or we're not, but we're going to go out in a in a flame of glory, or do you try to tailor things? Do you go back and tell the guy, hey, this audience ain't going to laugh at joke number seven in your act because, you know, or blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I mean, does that kind of calculation go into it? Yeah, it certainly does. Yeah, like the, the – it, and it's – you know, the headliner oftentimes will show up 
you know, 10 minutes. Drunk. <laughs> yeah, 10 minutes before he had to go on. And uh, he won't, and he'll just say, how are they? You know, um, right before you, you know, bring him on, you know, he'll come in and go, hey, how's the crowd? And, you know, really, what I guess the, 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 there's its own hierarchy of needs there. What he really wants to know is, is there any problems? Is there a heckler? You know, that's the first thing you're going to tell him. Ah, there's a drunk lady at the, in, in the front, and only you can hear her, so it's going to suck. you gotta, you got to diffuse that right away. Okay, cool. Um, that kind of thing. Or, you know, he just wants to feel the energy of the room. Um, but, you know, usually there aren't extreme mismatches between crowd and entertainer, although it does happen. One, one that jumps into mind when you say that was... I played Boca Raton once, and it was they had this terrible, uh, you know, the, the dinner buffet. Uh, you know, it was like a dinner and a show thing. It wasn't even a buffet, but it was like a really cheap dinner. And so, you know, not to be you know, talk about not to pick on bricklayers, not not to pick on Jews, but it's a, <laughs> it's a highly Jewish community. And my Jewish friends laugh at this story all the time because they they can relate. And so you have a you know a hundred um jewish senior citizens and their food is very late in arriving <laughs> and they're not happy and it's coming out cold and this in the and the wait staff is flipping out and and i'm on stage and all i'm worried about is i'm like editing my jokes as i tell them because i'm thinking oh man i'm gonna offend them with this i'm gonna offend them with this i shouldn't curse i shouldn't say that word and i remember a, a couple of jokes in a voice from the back was, you know, they were annoyed with me thinking, what does this guy think? We don't know salty language, you know? Uh-huh. And, and some guy just yelled out, just do the joke. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah, and it was like, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, like, well, what is the matter with me? Like, they, they, they've done way more living than I have. I'm like 26 at the time, you know? And so, um, yeah, so you do adjust, and, and yeah, that's, that's totally going on. But it really is a fight-or-flight scenario when you're on the stage because anything can happen at any moment. And, you know, that's kind of what makes it fun. Um, you, you almost get to the point where if, if you're bored with your act, you, you're kind of wanting hecklers <laughs> well, you know, you say you say just do the joke. That's just like that thing that I got from Halbert. You know, just sell the damn thing. Yeah. Um, sometimes we get all caught up in our own cleverness, or we think we're. You know, I, I think you just outlined one of the worst things you can do to a list is to look down on them. You may be at a level above them. You may be funnier than them. You may be smarter than them. You may be have more money than them as a writer. You may be closer to self actualization. You may be. You know, you may know yourself better and you're talking to them. But if you talk down to them, yeah, uh, you've lost them, right? You, the, the game is over right there. You have to still understand. So you have to you have to open the door and walk back down to that level that, that they're at. You can, you know, I, I, I talk about it in a slightly different way about being on the other side of the mountain. To me, most of the audiences that I was writing to are on one side of this mountain, and they're, they're, they're living a life of whatever. It didn't matter what their life was like. But let's say they're just living a life, but they know that the, at the other side of this mountain is a better life than theirs. They don't know how to define better. They're not sure what it is. They can't really describe it because they've never been there. But 
you are the guy who's been over the mountain and you've seen there and lived to the other people's and you know all about it and you come back because these guys on on the on the bad side of the mountain don't know how to get over the mountain the mountain is the obstacle the mountain keeps them away because they don't they're afraid they they're afraid to change they don't know the path and you come back and you go i will show you how to go over the mountain come with me yeah and if it, i've had that in mind for a long time because a lot of people get upset when most of their list doesn't respond to an offer or something and an experienced marketer knows you know you're going to get you know if you get 10 percent of your list or 20 percent of your list to do something that's huge right you know because most people are just going to turn it off they're not ready they're not in a position to do it they didn't hear it they didn't get them whatever is going on but you if you have sometimes out of a hundred people uh you get one or two to go the you know de- depending on on the marketing paradigm and the model you're using that's enough but you just, you know, so you're not trying to convince everybody. You're trying to convince a couple of people to be able to go with you on the other side of the mountain to see what's going on. And that's, 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 you're dragging them up a level. You're taking them over the mountain. You're actually carrying them on your back and, 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 and going somewhere, somewhere new. Yeah. So, um, I, it's just when I'm so fascinated with stand up, I would never, do stand up, uh, but I've seen a lot of stand up. I was in Los Angeles during the '80s during during that explosion, and I yeah. was going to a, a lot a lot of the clubs. I saw a lot of the guys that wound up on Saturday Night Live, like Kevin Nealon. Oh yeah, he had That's a common. great act. He started. He just yeah. walk up there with a map, a local map, and just start. <laughs> riffing on the thing and wind up with you know start tearing the map and wind up with it was just it was just funny and i saw ellen you know degenerate you know oh, yeah. back when she was pretending she was straight but she, <laughs> she was just she, she had that that thing down so well yeah. but it was still kind of heady stuff you could miss the joke it was like because she was coming out of left field with most of her punchlines you know it was yeah, like a lot of misdirection made, yeah is that what it is yeah yeah mm-hmm. mis, misdirection things like that so you know knowing your audience what once the audience comes to see you First, first, that's where another dividing line comes mm. on. Because at first, you're going to an audience that doesn't point. know who you are, may mm. not be, may be annoyed that they got to listen to you before they get to the guy they came to see. Right. Then suddenly they're coming to see you. At that point, you still there are still. This is what pisses a lot of people off about life. Then there becomes another crucible point. There comes another path, you know, fork in the road. You know, it's like when you become a comic that they're coming to see, are you just going to continue doing the thing? Are you going to be carrot top to the X, you know, to the nth degree and and Mm -hmm. aim for that? permanent show in vegas or are you going to branch out and become like um like um um robin williams and start doing dramatic roles you know in hollywood you know and and all of these changes that that happen and you know you can just go right down the line of the comics like steve martin uh, eddie murphy eddie murphy did one semi-dramatic role right coming to america it bombed as, as i recall he got savaged by critics and yeah, well, uh, he, he yeah. just kind of took his ball and went home. As did Dave uh, Chappelle. Dave Chappelle is one of the most brilliant comics I've ever, yeah. I've ever seen, and he just left the game. You know? And still can't really explain why. <laughs> the famous recent Letterman interview where Dave just, you know, Dave is he's just like, what happened? And he's like, I yeah. don't know, Dave. <laughs> but you know, it's interesting. Um, well, then it becomes a series of choices, right? Because I'll tell you two examples. Uh, I don't want to talk out of school, but I can tell you that my friend Billy is going through that experience of you know being the guy you know he got he got what he was aiming for that tv show that became a success that got renewed yeah 
and and so you know, Billy jokes that he was for about seven What's years. What's the show? Just it's, just to catch people. Yeah, Mike there. and Molly, yeah. and Billy's uh, one of my greatest friends in life. He's the star of the show, and um, so now he's you know a famous comic, and um, you know owns that '57 Chevy. Let you drive. That's that's right, uh, and yeah, they're in their fifth season, so you know they get 12 million viewers per episode. It's he's he's a well known guy, um, but. So here he is. And, you know, before that, he jokes that he was that guy. You know, like people wouldn't know his name, but they knew they saw him from somewhere. And people go, honey, is that, is that the guy from TV or did he fix our toilet? <laughs> <laughs> Where do we know that guy from? <laughs> but uh, and now he's Billy and people come to see him and he sells out Vegas and he sells out Atlantic City. And um, it's fantastic. But so he, he feels this immense pressure now to write jokes and what's interesting is I think it's, it is more difficult for him, one, because he has so little time to do anything. You talk about an entrepreneur. I mean, this guy's running basically a, a business. Just, you know, what a lot of people don't know is the head actor on a show really is the showrunner. Uh, you know, Jim Burroughs pulled him aside and said, you know, let me tell, let me tell you what I told um, what made Cheers great is that Ted Danson understood that as he went, the show went. So he hmm. knew that he could not afford to show up in a shitty mood. He couldn't bitch about salary. If he made more, he had fight. He had to fight for everybody to make more. And and that has been you know true throughout the life of Mike and Molly. Even though Melissa McCarthy has become an international you know, megastar mm-hmm. in, in the midst of all that, it really still is um, in large part Billy bringing the energy to the show and in a sense I think um, she she relies on that as an anchor but um, so there's there is there is that and so Billy it feels this great pressure to now you know Billy you, you got to consider they go well why don't you just hire writers man it's really not that easy when you spent 20 years developing your own act in your own talk about honing a voice right mm-hmm. and a sudden now just guys even though they know your voice pretty well are turning in jokes to you it's it's, it's hard to make that transition so so he's always struggling to um, write new material just like he did as a road comic um, that hasn't changed although except now he sells out theaters <laughs> and um, so it, it does make it a little easier I mean when people get on their feet the second you hit the stage obviously you have a big advantage but you know, I, re- I heard a recent interview with um, Seinfeld, and um, it was with Alec Baldwin interviewed him, and Alec said, um, "You know, Jerry, you you could have you could have how many shows could you have produced after Seinfeld? I mean, why wouldn't you just take that money? People must have offered you boatloads of money to produce <laughs> shows." And Jerry said, uh, "Because what were the chances of them being good?" He mm. said, "You know, I realized the miracle." That Seinfeld was. And the only reason it worked was because Larry and I never gave in to um, sort of moving up the hierarchy. They always stayed the writers first. He said, you know, when you get success... He said, the first year, it's just yours. You get to create it. No one cares about you. No one bothers you. Once you have a hit, suddenly... 
everybody wants you on the phone and they would and we'd be in there writing and they'd constantly be saying uh there's an important call and we're not taking the call don't ask us to take the call we're never taking a call <laughs> when we're in this room we're working on the we're doing the thing that got us here and they held true to that and that's why the show stayed consistently great so i guess to answer your question in a long about long roundabout way you have to decide what do you want from this steve martin quit stand-up because it became no longer were people laughing they were just hooting and, and howling and and he started i i if i recall he wrote about saying jokes that were definitely not funny to test the audience and that's it's still right. howling laughter and that's when he realized it, that, you know i i could go up here and just babble the entire time you know that that thing about uh you know uh, uh jerry and 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 uh um larry david. his partner uh what larry david mm-hmm. yeah yeah david um uh, not letting people in the room. You know, Halbert, you know, that was a big thing with me was, you know, I went to that, <clears throat> I've, I've written about this a lot, but I went, early on working with Halbert, I went in to do a day of writing, as we called it, or it was going to be like four hours of writing, and we sat down at the office, and right as we sat down, he, he had three secretaries at the time, <laughs> One of them was his girlfriend. They all came in, and the problems were just amazing. The, the landlord was on his way up in the elevator. The printer didn't work. And, it, it, you know, somebody was on the phone demanding blah, blah, blah. And I, I just threw my hands up. I said, there goes our writing day. And Albert got up, walked slowly across the room, pushed all the women out of the room, closed the door, locked it, and came back and sat down and said, let's, let's, get, let's get to work. And, when, you know, and, and there's a couple of, of, um, of uh, lessons there. One is that, yeah, what, what got us there was the writing, not fixing the printer or dealing with the landlord. We could have been kicked out of that room. Yeah. We could have gone a bottom of the printer or gone down to Kinko's. You know, all, there were all easy ways to get around those problems. That's right. But nothing was going to replace writing the copy that made the ads work. Um, but the, you know, the other side of that was when we opened the door a couple of hours later, all those problems had been solved. It's just you know the, you know we, everybody turned to to Gary and me to solve these things and we didn't need to solve it's like go figure it out uh, Stan you know my 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 partner has this great thing when he goes off on his month long trips every summer to to Europe um, he he tells his staff over at, at Marketing Rebel which which he owns now mm-hmm. he he says if the if it's not going to cost us more than $1000 don't call me and then this year i think he raised it to 5000 wow. he says whatever decision you make if it's you know just kind of give it a quick estimation is this going to co- if if you're wrong and you totally screw it up and and the damages are going to be around 5 grand just go ahead and make the decision Tr- trust yourself do the best you can and you know uh, Albert used to say there are no, there's no such thing as a mistake made from, or no, all, all mistakes made from enthusiasm are forgivable. That's mm-hmm. the line. And so, you know, that got him in trouble a little bit because he needed to further define it. You know, it's like a million dollar mistake made out of enthusiasm is not good. And I actually had a client who brought someone on who out of enthusiasm cost them a million dollars in, in some really bad ad buys and stuff. And they had to fire her. But within reason, thinking of those of those ways to frame the thing so that people understand where they're at. It's like, hey, as far as the printer, if you have to go buy a new printer and you can't fix it, go buy a new printer. It's it's three hundred dollars. You know, don't right. you know, I'm in here trying to write to make make us, you know, the rent for the next six months, you know, and all yeah, this is the coal that fires the engine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's 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 very good. Also, you mentioned that, you know, Larry and um Jerry wanted to stay in that at that level of being a writer, but 
they were operating at, at a level. They got better. The early part of the, uh, I, I wasn't a huge Seinfeld fan because I just wasn't watching TV during that time. But I've watched most of them since as reruns, and I pay very close attention to where in the cycle the shows are because they, they did morph a bit. They finally got to, you know. Um, George Costanzas and uh, Jerry went to Hollywood with their show about nothing and things like that. Right. And and they started getting into this heady stuff. That's I think that's the way they pitched Seinfeld. Yeah. We're- you know, they they were only lucky because they had a, a a couple of producers that were willing to get behind them and give them a shot. So, you know, staying within, you know, the writer is not a lowly position, and most of the top marketers I know do not regard it as a lowly position. Many of the of the marketers that I wind up doing consultations with or helping do think that if they've written to get them to that point, they want to get away from the writing, or they never consider writing to be anything more than like a vendor. You know, it's like, okay, I just just need an ad, you know, (laughs) just just write me a good ad that'll make me a million bucks. Yeah, yeah, and he thinks he's the magic, or the product's the magic, or the business is the magic. And, you know, sometimes, you know, if, if you get up there with IBM, yeah, maybe it doesn't matter what 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 writer you using? Maybe you can use the rookie over at one of the Madison Avenue you know ad agencies, and they'll write you a great slogan, you know, and it'll work. And you'll you'll do so much testing, you know, focus group testing. That's fine, but you're not doing direct response. If you're in a direct response business, never ever look to people who are not in direct response for advice or insight on how to do it yourself. Right. So. Um, all right, uh, we're kind of coming up on an hour. Um, my recommendation here is to look at Maslow's. Um, uh, as I said, I was at simplypsychology.org uh, forward slash Maslow.html. There's a picture of the, uh, a nice little picture of the uh, uh, pyramid and explanation, and there's a couple of quotes by Maslow. And it, you don't need to go too much deeper than than what he did is this. It's it's breaking it down. But as, as far as understanding what the breakdown is, you do need to go deeper. You need to understand this on a level where you could pass a test on this, I think. I think you, you got to think about it as, as, I don't like rote memory, but I think you should have a really good visceral, internalized sense of this of this of of this kind of hierarchy and you should be able to morph it to move over say you take this hierarchy over to the automotive industry if you're writing an ad for guys who restore old cars you know at what levels are the guys you're talking to are they going to buy their first old car out of a junkyard and try to restore it is this their 50th car they're restoring are they showing these cars in international things are they taking these cars to the auctions that that happen you know all over the country where are they at and 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 where is that you know do you get to the point where you're selling cars in auctions Without going through getting your first car out of the junkyard and restoring it, my guess is probably not. But but don't guess. Go find out. Go talk to these guys. You know, if your if your client is up at the level of taking the car to an international 
show or something, ask him, ask him where he came from. Ask him what levels he rose up through and what it was like going up through those levels. You know, what's it like to finish your first car that you drug out of a junkyard and you had to fake some of the parts and it wasn't all original equipment, but it ran. I mean, what, what was it like when it started up the first time? And then, yeah. and then what was it like when you sold your first restored car? And then what was it like when you actually hung, hung up uh, a shingle outside of your, you know, of your restoration shop and you and your buddy Buster, you know, were actually, you know, you had a couple of clients and you had to, you know, you had to stay late the first night. I mean, how did you feel about that? What was, what was the visceral, the emotional, the, the sense of pride and stuff? What was going on? And then remember Maslow's hierarchy, what these guys are going through. You know, the, the first car you drag out is probably not because you need money to feed the family and pay the rent. It's, it's, you know, you're at a different level. But eventually, if you turn that into your business, then you move down a level on Maslow's name because you do have to make it a success. And then you're moving through these things. And then, you know, and also, where do things go wrong as people move up a level? Every time you move up a level in anything, whether it's business, life, love, anything, you know, it's like in love, you go after the woman you want to marry and be happy the rest of your life. Well, you get her, you marry her. Now what? You know, the day after you're married begins the rest of the marriage, and there is no happily ever after. It's like every day there may be a struggle. You may find out she's, you know, I, I don't even need to go there. You can already start, you know, imagining what's going on. And it's like, you know, so what's going And then you go to the next level. You bring in kids and you bring in the mortgage and stuff. And what, what goes on with each of these things? These decision levels, these de- decision trees you, have, you have, to keep, have to keep going after. To most people, that is this, again, this vague, hazy, complex, headachey, hard to get your mind around thing. To an experienced marketer and especially a copywriter, it's just a, oh, I need to break this down. Start breaking it down. You know, what what is the decision tree? What happens if you say no to this and yes to this? And what's going on? Start mapping it out. And very quickly it stops becoming this disorganized sense of chaos and horror and becomes a very organized, very um, very understandable, very uh, trackable um, uh, type of thing, and that's where you start these these little things like like about uh, like about Cheers, what you're saying about um, uh, nice. dancing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's huge. I, I had not heard that before, and uh, that's the best way I've I've heard the explanation of somebody's got to take it on their back to make this happen. Yeah. And whether you're a one man band as a freelancer, or whether you brought on assistants, or you take on partners, or you start an actual business as needs to be managed and stuff. You know, you have to understand your role in this, and you can't. And one of the biggest problems I've seen is people handing it off to people without training, without without accountability. And it's because they're they're tired or they're burned out, and that's that's a whole other show that that we'll talk about is managing all that. But it but most people that burn out don't understand why they burned out or what it is or what happened. And a lot of people who have been through it can deconstruct it and figure out what's going on and where things went wrong and where things went wrong. Right, and why they went right, and it wasn't that you are blessed by on the joke, and it was funny, and you tested it, and it was good, and you know the the other joke that bombed, you may have spent an equal amount of time and done it, but it didn't work. So that decision tree means that's done, or you take it to another thing and you work on it, you find out why it worked, it, it didn't work, and make it work, things like that. But you've got to do all of this consciously. 
So that would that would be my main thing. This Maslow hierarchy thing was it was a, a matter of taking something complex and seemingly unknowable and making it knowable and understandable and actually turning it into a tool to be used in in my writing. Yeah. Any other thoughts, Kevin? No, it's great. In fact, you know, you could just do an image search and get a, a, a bunch of different options. Uh, there's the, all kinds of uh, different graphics of the hierarchy of needs, and and I just and set different one. interpretations of it too. Yes, slightly different. Yeah, and so as we were talking, I literally just made one my desktop saver. I think that's a good idea for any writer. Just yep. something you see every day, or like John did, print it out pin it up next to your desk well it's, that was old school we didn't have desktops back then so. <laughs> it was in, it was in dot matrix <laughs> oh i was talking with harlan about our our first printers you know his you know i was bragging about my first printer i got after i got rid of my ibm selectric and moved up to a computer was a dot matrix you know it was a page a minute on its fastest hard to read little thing and, and he says i got you beat i had a daisy wheel it was 10 minutes a word or 10 minutes a page i think yeah it was it was just yeah we and we still thought it was star trek i i would watch that dot matrix and i was just thinking wow i'm 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 like on the deck of the uh of the enterprise right now this is sci-fi come alive i had no idea what was coming around the corner now i got laser printers and yeah, i got 3d printers people are printing dildos and guns in there <laughs> In their, uh, in their office. So. But, you know, it's like this laser, I'm mad at it because it, it occasionally won't immediately recognize my, my idea to print. You know, I don't right. want to hit print, and then it doesn't print. All I have to do is go over and unplug it, plug it back in, and it kicks in, and everything's fine. But I'm mad at it. It's like, oh, you know, damn you, laser printer. That's causing me a minute and a half of extra work walking across the room. And, yeah. Oh, boy. All right, uh, Kevin. That was that was a good show. I, I always enjoyed looking into the uh, comics mind and stuff because um, I really see a, a simpatico. Um, uh, well, if all comics are writers unless they're just stealing stuff, you know, right and left. Even then, they got to rewrite it a bit. But they're, or even if they're just ad libbing, they're still writing at the moment. So the the, the you know, all writers share a certain bond, and and the risk factors, and the need for success, and how you measure success, and all of that is very very important uh, for the comic and for the freelance writer and for the fiction writer and for the sports writer and. And for for almost anything, you're creating, you're taking something from nothing, and taking it out into the world and seeing if it gets a laugh. Mm. So great, or a sale. So many is applause. All right, that's about it. Oh, as always, great talking with you. Likewise, do we do kind of wrap up. Oh, no. we never. Oh. We had Charlie Watts from the Rolling Stones waiting to get on the line. Yeah, here. well, we had such a. Yeah, Charlie was going to come on with us and and talk about a new solo project, but. We, uh, did, did he up? Yeah, he did. He, he, well, I, I I let him off because I told him I said we, John's hot today, and uh, and I said we'll we'll try to get you on the next one, Charlie. So thank you, Charlie Watts, for for hanging with us. But and we'll, we'll look for your new record. But um, yeah, also I guess the wrap up is please go visit us at, at pi the number four mm dot com. As you know, we love your comments. We love uh, interacting with you, sort of backstage there at the blog so thanks for listening we'll be back real soon with another one see you john bye bye <laughs>